Welcome to the green room of Disrupt TV. We're talking about Dogecoin and NFTs. No, just kidding. Uh, we're here with some awesome guests. We get some great insights. Uh, we'll do some reverse, <laughs> reverse. We'll do some reverse uh, introductions. I can't keep a straight face today, but uh, <laughs> and then we'll start the show. So let's go to Bill and Colin. Bill, tell us where you're calling from. What you're going to be talking about, Colin. The same. We'll jump into John, and then of course uh, with some quick introductions. Our end. Hey, I'm Bill Carr, Hi, Bill. and. And uh, I'm, I'm here in uh, Sun Valley, Idaho today, and uh, I'm the co-author, along with Colin, of the book, Working Backwards, Insight Stories and Secrets from Inside Amazon. Woohoo! We're going to get all the insight things. Colin, what else? Oh, uh, yeah, from? so I'm Colin here from Seattle, uh, Colin Breyer, and worked about 12 years, a little over 12 years at Amazon. Combined, Bill and I were 27 years at Amazon, so we should be able to give you answer a bunch of questions about what it was like in the early days and how to turn a small company into a large company. What he's really saying is they've worked 270 years because a year at Amazon is 10 years, just so everyone knows. <laughs> All right, John, uh, where are you calling from? What are you going to talk about today? Hey, John Meller, calling in from Park City, Utah. I'm the uh, Chief Strategy Officer at Domo. We're going to talk about virtual events and pivoting from live events to virtual events. Maybe we'll get into some data democratization and all that good stuff about using data in a more efficient way. Very, very cool. All right. So with that, we're going to do the honors and Elle, let's kick us off. So. All right. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guest, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we will do our best to answer them during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. And in July of this year, breaking news, his new book, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, will be his next bestseller. He's a regular television, business, and technology uh, news contributor. You can see him on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, and Bloomberg. In my humble opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot with my awesome co-host, Vala Afshar. More importantly, if you follow him on Twitter and social channels, he is the most followed individual from CEOs, CMOs, and CIOs. Uh, but more importantly, um, you can see him in uh, keynotes, talking to executives, working on, uh, he's, he's an author himself, and more importantly, you're going to see him all over uh, talking about where the future is headed. So, uh, But with that, um, let's start the show and uh, also thank our sponsors, Robots and Pencils. Who do we have here today? So... Uh, Ray, it's our honor to have John Meller's Chief Strategy Officer at Domo. John brings more than 25 years of technology industry experience to Domo, where he's responsible for shaping Domo's corporate strategy and positioning to meet the dynamic needs of today's data-driven organizations, leaders, and practitioners. Prior to Domo, John served as Vice President of Strategy and Business Operations for Adobe's digital experience business, which was the company's fastest growing business unit, driving more than $3 billion of annual revenue. Uh, John joined Adobe through an acquisition of Omniture in 2009, where he served as executive vice president of marketing. You can follow John on Twitter at MellorTime, M-E-L-L-O-R-T-I-M-E. -L -L -E. Welcome, John, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Great to be here. Good, good, good times. You know, it is Miller time and, you know, having followed you through your career as well as been at your events and all the stuff that you've been doing, it's been wonderful watching the journey. Um, last year, like literally we watched the most amazing virtual event. Like we just started the process, you know, people are like, ah, oh, virtual events, it's going to be okay. And you guys had the most interesting set of circumstances happen at the same time as your virtual event. I'm not going to spoil it, but you pivoted from your awesome live customer event to a hundred percent digital one and pretty much set the standard. I mean, everybody was like, okay, this is what we've got to do. Talk about it. I mean, talk about what happened and how you did it in 12 business days to do that pivot. <laughs> well, uh, that's high praise. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. And as much as I've tried to block it out because it was, <laughs> as you say, a pretty traumatic experience. Uh, it was, it really was one of the very first enterprise um, customer events that, that pivoted from being a physical event to a digital event. And, you know, I, it, it's, it's so interesting. I think of these events as having the kind of two sides to the coin, right? You've got part of the event that is a real forcing function for an enterprise. 
it brings together marketing, strategy, sales, support, messaging, all that kind of stuff has to get wrapped up into a good bow. Um, and that's just a real, a real positive for these events. But man, and it was uh, it was in February. Our event was was scheduled for late late March, and as you know, of course, the pandemic was was raging and getting really strong. But it was it was kind of an unknown. We weren't really clear how much of an impact it was going to have on travel or our ability to do a live event. And we ultimately made the call in the interest of you know our customers and and our community to do it virtual. Uh, completely live, but we did that with 12 business days left. So imagine all of the energy that has gone into the previous really year of booking venues, food, hotels, flights, entertainment, and you're so invested in this thing. And when you hear it's going to be a hundred percent online, you know, I think the first thing you do is you get around in a group and you have a little group cry. You do. You do. Oh my you God, do. I would have cried so hard. So. And uh, you know, and then you 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 quickly pull up your boots and you say, "Hey, it's time. We're gonna we're gonna do this this virtually." And you know, we when we made that decision, we set three key priorities for the for the conference. First, we said the con- the content's got to be great. I mean, really, these events are nothing without excellent content. Um, you know, thought leadership content, practitioner content, customer evidence, that kind of stuff. Uh, the second priority we set was attendance. We got to get a lot of people there. I mean, let's look on the bright side. If we're doing an event virtually and we're not asking people to get on planes, we're not asking them to take three days off work, we should get a multiple of people uh, coming to this event than what that would have come to the live event. And then third was community. And for us, these events, they were so much about community. It's that, it's that intimate interaction you have with your customers and your partners that really defines a business, and particularly for Domo. I mean, we, we do this session at the end of Domo Palooza where it's, it's open mic with the product team. And if you can imagine how um, terrifyingly wonderful it is to open up the mic to thousands of customers and say, what do you think about our roadmap? What would you like to see? It's not working. What can we do better? And, um, but the, you know, the product team and actually the whole company just thrives on that intimacy with the audience. And we, we wanted to do everything we could to protect that intimacy. So great content, attendance and, and the intimacy. Real quick, what I meant traumatic, it was not the traumatic experience of trying to do it in 12 days. Did you forget that you had an earthquake a couple hours before the event? So I'm, I'm driving down the canyon to Salt Lake City and my phone starts to blow up. People are, what is that? What is that? And uh, I couldn't feel it because I was driving. And I just, I remember saying, texting somebody back and said, if I see anything that looks like a cloud of locusts, I am going back home. <laughs> You, you combine pandemic with the largest earthquake that Utah has had in a few decades. And you know, I got to the event and all of the production staff was in the parking lot. They left. They're like, nope, not doing it. And so we had to kind of wait a while and really talk through it before we got in and, and did the event. But that you're right, right? That was literally less than three hours before the event. We had a major earthquake. And then after the event, what happened? Like literally after the event, you had the aftershock roll through too. Oh my gosh. We were, we were doing a, an event, a, an investor event after. And it was, our CFO was on stage and you could actually see this giant monitor behind him <laughs> waving. Oh gosh. I just, you know, it was, uh, it was crazy. In fact, I've got this, uh, I'll show you here, this little, this little trophy that we made folks it says I survived. Uh, Domo Palooza 2020. It's got the little coronavirus, and it's got the little crack for the for the earthquake. Uh, so we, we had we had this motto of people that says, "You you can't scare me. I survived Domo Palooza 2020." That's amazing. That's amazing, John. As a, as as the you know the strategy guy, the chief strategy officer, when you go through um, a hard pivot uh, like that. 
Uh, what do you what do you, what are some lessons learned in terms of speed and relevance and precision, flexibility, community? Some of the things that you mentioned that went into creating a successful um, event. Did you are there lessons that you learned um, in terms of strategy that will define this year's event or even generally uh, define how you look in terms of uh, you know. Uh, defining the strategy for the company in terms of the, how you serve your stakeholders. Yeah, you know, I think one one thing that you see in those situations is the power of action when a decision is made. So w- there was a lot of limbo in the week or two heading up to uh, the, the actual point of making the decision to go virtual. And, you know, the team wasn't getting a lot of work done because you were just, are we, aren't we, are we? And uh, once that decision was made, we're going completely virtual. Man, that the power of a decision, a known, and uh, rallying around the known is is huge. That was a big thing. And you know, I think in terms of of lessons learned, I think th- we talked about the two sides of the coin. You got the internal power of events like this for alignment, but then you've got the external view of the event and. The way I think about it is these events have gone from a five course plated dinner to more of a grab and go, right? So usually a customer event where you've got somebody captive for three days, it's kind of like the five, the five course plated dinner. If you don't love course three, well, you know, I'm dressed, I'm here, I'm going to power yep. through it. <laughs> Whereas a grab and go is if you don't like what you're seeing, you're gone. And so you've got to t- pivot these events to be more snackable. You've got to think, think, grab and go. Think I've got three minutes to five minutes max to keep somebody's attention. And then I better have a pivot in media or in presenter or content type. Something's got to change to keep the interest up. Um, and then also realize people aren't going to consume these things linearly. They're going to come and they're going to take one bit today and maybe another bit tomorrow or another bit later today. And so we've we've pivoted of those three principles I talked about of great content, attendance um, and uh, just the community. We've kind of pivoted the second one. So, yes, we think about attendance, but we're now measuring ourselves on engagement meaning how much of the content is consumed by the right accounts and the right people at those accounts. So that I think is the pivot that we've got to think about in these events is engagement Um, and engagement on, you know, the attendees terms. Again, it's grab and go. Yeah. You know, it's a great point. I mean, yeah. You're, you're, you're basically thinking about going away from the vanity metrics before it's like, great, we got a million people watching for like 10 seconds. Like, <laughs> like, great. So now you're like, hey, how do we get these guys watching, sharing content, getting stuff in, putting the actual metrics that are in place. So, yeah. but hey, about the, the conference is really about data democratization. It's really talking about data, how people are using it, what's happening. You've been spending a lot of time talking about this for, for some time. Um, so why are we still talking about this? <laughs> like, well, you know, why, why, why isn't it a reality for companies to be able to access data, use the data, share it, and do all these kind of fun stuff? Yeah. You know, and, and Ray, it's funny. Even that word data democratization just kind of scares me. And we're, <laughs> we're moving into the middle part of the, of the adoption curve. And, you know, the middle, the, the, you get into the middle part of the adoption curve, which is where this has to go, where we all want it to go. And you start using words like data democratization. Like I, you know, I, I'm going to a dinner party tonight, and if somebody asks me what I do, and I say data democratization, <laughs> total you, won't, you won't get invited right? again. I won't be back, man. Yeah. <laughs> Who's this guy? But if I if I pull out my phone and say, "Hey, Domo Palooza is coming up. Let me show you how many how many attendees we've got." Boom, boom, boom. Let me show you what companies they're from. Boom, boom, boom. Let me show you how many signed up today. Boom, boom, boom. Then you start to think in terms of. What are the benefits of data democratization? That's sort of what's under the hood. It's got, I kind of think about it like consumer electronics. It, there was a time when we all got excited about the Pentium chip. And oh, there's a new chip. There's a faster chip. It's cool. Now what I think about it, when I look at my iPhone is, can you imagine how great these pictures are? This thing is amazing. Have you taken a night picture with this? It's incredible. And did you know I can even really put good. it under the water and take a picture underwater? I have no idea what chip is in there or how they did it. I don't care. 
All I know is it is super useful to me as a consumer. So that's where I want the conversation to go around data. Like, I don't know what's plugged into this thing to make it work, but man, it's useful and it's cool. And I can do my job so much better. Um, it's about better outcomes. Absolutely. Makes total, makes total sense. No, so, you know, uh, we talked about the, 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 the driver behind shifting to virtual events, that being the pandemic. And of course, the other major outcome as a result of pandemic was this decentralized digital only life and work construct. And uh, the, my question is, you know, now that we've experienced a year of decentralized, mostly digital engagements, uh, is, is it more, do we have more sense of urgency with company leaders to rely on better data or insights so that, uh, you know, we can make uh, faster, better informed decisions? Has the pandemic led to a greater sense of urgency for the need for good data? Oh, in uh, it has it has accelerated digital transformation by many many years. In in a way, I think of this like our it was the Y two K moment uh, mm. for digital transformation. You know, Y two K was you know kind of a nice to have. Let's you know let's upgrade our infrastructure, get an ERP in place. Once the Y two K event was was identified, I mean ERP business grew sixfold in five years. Um, just because there was a forcing function. So the pandemic has become a forcing function for data. I mean, we, so, you know, we've got customers now, we've got a customer who runs a, a big franchise uh, operation for fast food. So now what do they think about when they put in a new location? I've got to get a six lane drive through. You know, it's no longer I need a drive through. I got to have six lanes because that's going to be the majority of my business. Got, got another customer who, who specializes in um, distribution for food across the country, refrigerated food. Well, somebody thinks if I'm really good at logistics for refrigerated food, maybe I should think about supporting the cold chain for vaccine distribution. Yep, yep. That's different input. It's saying it, it's you're you're just you're forced to think about your business differently. You still have to make key decisions about your business, and you don't want to you don't want somebody to feed you just speeds and feeds and the new Pentium chip for how to do it. You want them to talk about the benefits of how great your business is going to be when you can make decisions like this. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. You know, we, we've been talking a lot about decision velocity, right? You know, humans make yeah. decisions one per second. You get it out of management committee in six weeks if we're lucky, still no decision. You know, machines are making decisions a thousand times per second, right? That is asymmetry is killing folks and that decision velocity. Was it last week, Bala, we were talking about Chick-fil-A? Or maybe it was, this. I don't know what that was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the drive-thru Chick-fil-A. was like amazing. That's like oh, the they're so efficient. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you're, I don't know if you're working with them. You can't tell us if you're not, but like it was, we're like, this is the best digitization i mean it's like the mobile experience the phone in experience the people trained on the ground were just amazing we're still talking yeah. about them maybe we'll find the chick-fil-a cmo to come on board but um but yeah <laughs> it was just amazing so but hey let's talk about SaaS. what's going on with SaaS? right you've been in here a lot you've been in companies that tried to get from cloud to uh, from on-prem to SaaS, and now you're at pure SaaS companies what's going on right where's innovation happening why is, is it working is it working fast enough uh, what, what gives them an advantage yeah it's an it's never working, never working fast enough. We'll, we'll always say it's never working fast enough. But you know, the thing I love about SaaS is it aligns the, uh, the customer's um, priorities with the business's priorities, right? Customer can choose from one month to the next, one year to the next of, do I buy again? And, uh, you know, the vendor, the business has got to innovate fast enough to stay ahead of that value curve. So it's, it's uh, it's really a, a big benefit on both sides from what from what I can see. And you know, think about it in a in a pandemic now. I don't have to touch anybody's servers. I don't even need anybody to go on site to get somebody implemented and up and running and getting value. That's pretty powerful. Uh, and that's I think a a uh, something that the the pandemic has helped accelerate even for for SaaS companies. Absolutely. Uh, John, this is my final question. Uh, you know, as the, again, strategy officer for Domo, I'm sure you have clients always asking you for advice, specifically when they ask you for advice in terms of improving innovation velocity, they want to go faster and hopefully in the right direction. Uh, what do you find as, you know, 
the most constraint um, that that companies struggle with? Is it culture? Is it talent? Is it technical debt? You know, they're not a SaaS company, so they've got all these on-premise customized solutions that's just not keeping up with you know today's uh, emerging technologies. What what's keeping companies from uh, achieving uh, you know the proper innovation velocity? Proper meaning to staying relevant and growing. <laughs> I mean, there, there's an interesting uh, anecdote I like to talk about called uh, called Dude's Law, named after a, uh, a computer science person who looked like the you know Jeff Bridges and the Big Lebowski. Called it Dude's Law, and he talked about it as the the uh, the the why divided by the how. When you think of business decisions, why do you need the answer to that question? And the how is how hard is it for me to get you that answer? Good and old David Hussman. The, the, yeah, exactly. The, you know, the lower that output is, the more, um, the the easier it is to get those answers, the less cost, the more you're going to do it. So you, our focus as a vendor I mean, at Domo is to reduce the how. We've got to make it easier and easier and easier to ask those questions so that it doesn't have to be a, you know, how do I how do I land a shuttle on Mars kind of why it can be, hmm, I wonder which customers are buying more of this product on a Tuesday in this state. Well, that's an easy question to answer. So now I'm going to ask it. Um, and that helps drive the culture issue. It's, it's it's data participation, not just debated data democratization. Democratization sort of implies that it's available. Yeah. Data participation implies that people are participating and they're using the con using data to drive decisions. Terrific distinction. Awesome. Terrific. That's really well, it important. It is the end of Meller time. Just kidding. Uh, we've got to come to a close, but this is awesome. Hang out with John and uh, John Meller, Chief Strategy Officer at Domo, formerly an EVP at Adobe, as you all know. And of course, you can find him on Twitter at M-E-L-L-O-R-T-I-M-E. Real quick, when is Doma Palooza? When's the next one? 24th, coming up, just a couple of weeks. Sign up, come see us. Well, hey, it's only a couple of weeks. We know you can prep. You can, we know you can prep in 12 days or less, so we're not even worried about you guys anymore. So thanks a lot for <laughs> being on the John. show. Thanks for being here. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Oh, my. This I like that. Data, data participation. Story. It's data participation. Really, really important oh. distinction. Okay, super excited about our next segment. We have Bill Carr and Colin Breyer, co-founders of Working Backwards and authors of Working Backwards, Inside Stories and Secrets from Inside Amazon. Bill and Colin coach executives at both large and early stage companies on how to implement management practices developed at Amazon. Bill joined Amazon in 1999 and spent more than 15 years with the company. As vice president of digital media, Bill launched and managed the company's global digital music and video business, including Amazon Music, Prime Video, and Amazon Studios. After Amazon, was, uh, Bill was uh, executive in residence with Mayron, an early stage consumer-only venture capital firm. Bill later served as chief operating officer of OfferUp, the largest mobile marketplace for local buyers and sellers in the U.S. You can follow Bill on Twitter at BillCar89, and that's car with two R's. Colin joined Amazon in 1998. Uh, this is only four years after Amazon, the birth of Amazon, uh, and he spent 12 years as part of Amazon's senior leadership team. Now get this, Colin served as vice president at Amazon, and for two of those years, he was chief of staff to Jeff Bezos, AKA Jeff's shadow, uh, during which he spent each day uh, attending meetings, traveling with, discussing business and life with Jeff. After Amazon, Jeff served as chief operating officer of e-commerce company Redmark, which was subsequently sold to Alibaba. You can follow Colin on Twitter at C-B-R-Y-A-R. Welcome uh, Bill and Colin to Disrupt TV. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we'll get Bill off now real quick, but it's awesome to have you both here. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to talk more than two pizza teams. Uh, we've heard about that. So, <laughs> but hey, this is amazing, right? Amazon's been one of the digital giants we've been looking at for quite some time, right? For all the monetization reasons. I mean, you've got ad search, you've got good services, you've got subscriptions and memberships all firing at the same time. Uh, but now, what can anyone in business learn and apply, right, from from this amazing win, winning streak uh, when nobody else seems to be growing? There's something special here that hopefully is applicable to other companies. So I'll start with you guys. Who wants to take that? 
Well, uh, I could, you know, the answer could last several hours, but I'll, I'll give you the, uh, the 30 second answer <laughs> instead. Um, the, the short answer is that um, what most people, everyone knows about the, those exciting products and services that Amazon has built. They all know about uh, Prime, Amazon Prime, Echo, Alexa. They know about AWS. But what they don't know is that uh, Amazon actually developed a whole set of scalable, repeatable processes combined with a set of 14 leadership principles that define what Jeff Bezos once called the invention machine that Amazon has built. And this machine is something uh, that is fractal. It can work whether you are a company of five people or a company of 500,000 people. It can work for whether you're in a B2B business or B2C. It can work for digital media. It can work for any kind of business. And the reason we know this is because Amazon has all those kinds of businesses and they applied this machine to help create companies starting from zero and to manage these uh, incredibly large uh, global businesses today. And so that's what we wrote about in our book, Working Backwards, and we, we break this down for everyone so that you can understand how these principles work and how they're knit into five scalable, repeatable processes that any company can use. That's amazing. Can you shed some more light on the title, Working Backwards? Uh, and, and what's the lesson learned uh, from, from working backwards as it, in terms of the customer strategy? Yeah, working backwards, it's a very specific process at Amazon, and it's the process Amazon uses to take any idea and vet it and decide whether it's worth bringing to market. And this can be as small as what feature do we want to add into uh, in you know, an iOS app, or uh, do we want to go into a new line of business or a new type of category expansion? And at, at its heart, what the working backwards process is, is it's really starting from the customer experience and then working backwards from that. And how that's uh, different from what a lot of organizations do is a lot of uh, companies use what's called a skills forward approach. They look at, ask questions such as, what are we good at? What are our core competencies? What are our competitors doing? You know, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunity, the SWOT analysis type thing. What are the opportunities and threats? How can we nudge into an adjacent market and grab some market share? But often what's overlooked and not mentioned is the word customer. So Amazon inverted that on, you know, on its head and really said from the very beginning of an idea, we want to start define and start from that customer experience and work backwards from that. And really the, the, the primary tool is a press release and FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions document. So the first thing you do if you have an idea at Amazon is you write a one page press release, clearly defining the problem, clearly defining the solution and why it's good for customers. If you read that press release and you're not excited to go out and buy that product or use it, you go back and you know do not pass go. You, you write it over and over again until you move to the next step. And then the frequently asked questions part is really, those are the tough questions that you need to ask and answer to say, how do we organize and move forward to bring this product to market and make sure you know what you're getting into before, this is all before the project is greenlit. That's amazing. That's an amazing process. You're building your anticipatory muscle. You're anticipating what your customers can benefit from and the questions that they will have. And you're building uh, you know, that the mind share to be able to get everyone inspired and excited to build before they actually do. That's amazing. That's awesome. And, and, and that's basically, I mean, it's like an old coveyism, begin with the end in mind, right? And, and that's, that's what's so cool about that. But these kind of cultures are hard to do, right? I mean, I mean, the Amazon culture is hardcore. Like from all my friends who work there, it's, it's pretty impressive. Uh, and if you think about companies, like a lot of companies have been weakened by remote work, their corporate cultures, right? And, you know, what have they learned? What, what can you learn from Amazon's mechanism for reinforcing the culture consistently? Because, I mean, it, you guys act hungry. You guys, you know, always act hungry, always act like a startup even though you're not a startup, right? There's a, there's a mentality and a culture, a work ethos. I mean, it's pretty incredible. How do you, how is that done and built into that process working backwards? Well, the, the, one of the key ways that's done is by being a customer obsessed company. So um, in many cases, there are two different kinds of companies. There are companies that are competitor obsessed or customer obsessed. The, um, the problem with being competitor obsessed is if you are so fortunate to actually then become number one in any one product category that you're in, um, what are you supposed to do now? You may rest on your laurels. You, uh, you know, uh, what's what's driving you forward? So the answer to your question about what is driving um, the 
people at Amazon is if you're customer obsessed, customers are always um, wonderfully discontent. So uh, as a simple example of this, in the early days of Amazon, when we would you know deliver packages to people, it took you know an average you know like five days, um, and then you know but and people loved that, but they said you know I'd really rather have that sooner, and I'd really rather not you know pay for the shipping by the way, and so <laughs> over a variety of uh, of trials for how to solve this problem, eventually we landed on the Amazon Prime solution, uh, which is great. But even then, once you have that, people say, hey, this is fantastic. I'm glad that I'm getting it in two days. But, you know, there's a lot of times that I really could use it like tomorrow or actually sometimes when 15 minutes from now would be nice. And so if you are focused on your customers and one of the beautiful things about uh, business and an online business is that you have a very unfarnished and open channel to customer communication, uh, mm -hmm. email, customer support. And senior executives, uh, everyone at Amazon, whether you are an in individual contributor or senior executive, they read this stuff and they stay in touch with it. And that's what keeps you driven and realizing that my customers are still not content and they need more. And so you, you operate in this perpetual state uh, of feeling like there's just there's so much more to do. That's amazing. So, uh so, Colin, uh, it's not often we get to uh, speak to Jeff Bezos' shadow. Uh, and so, to tell us, uh, you know, what, what's the secret behind how new ideas and products are developed in Amazon? I mean, Bill obviously talked about being customer focused. You talked about working backwards, understanding the real value you're bringing to a customer. But is there some secret sauce you can provide some insight to in terms of how an idea grows from? you know, uh, someone's thoughts about delighting customer to a multi-billion dollar business or product. Yeah, so it, it's it's not a one trick pony that, you know, the customer obsession is, is key to that. And then, um, you know, like one example is when uh, we were moving from physical media, um, you know, shipping physical books, CDs and DVDs, we knew digital was was coming. We didn't know how fast it would be coming, uh, but we knew a good chunk of that business was going uh, was going to be digital. And it, you know, starting from the customer experience, it took us a while to figure out what would a great reading digital reading experience look like. And it turns out that we realized that our core business was the value we were creating for the e-commerce business was in the middle. We would aggregate products in our fulfillment centers, throw two of them into a box and ship it out to customers relatively quickly. You get a lot of benefit from getting that catalog and, and consolidating shipping. Um, you don't get any of that in digital is, you know, it's, it really it's, it's not, it's non-trivial, but a lot of companies can recreate in, you know, every, the catalog of every song ever produced or every movie. So we realized we had to move out to the different ends of the value chain. And one on one end was being close to the consumer, which was applications and devices. And we had not made a single device at that time. This is around 2004. But if you really start from the customer experience and you say, well, if we want to be in digital um, books, we need to build a device uh, that's going to be a great reading experience. We better learn how to do that quickly. And we can't outsource that innovation to someone else because that's we need to get it to iterate over and over again to improve the reading experience. The same thing happened, by the way, on the other end with the content creation side, you know, turned sure. eventually into Amazon Studios is an, a great example for, for the content creation for, for video content. And you can look at this um, type of, you know, starting really obsessing over the customer and figuring out what you need to do for them versus how can you take your capabilities and create something and try to convince the customer to buy what you just created. So, you know, I think that is, is, is one um, reason why Amazon has been able to work on a bunch of different areas and, and then go deep into these areas and build very large businesses from scratch. The last thing I'll add, you know, very quickly is the spirit of innovation also helps too. Um, you know, for the, for the digital business, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos took the leaders of the largest business, Steve Kessel and Bill Carr, and put them on a non-existent business to go figure out what digital was. The, the a second example is with Amazon Web Services, Andy Jassy, who's now the CEO of Amazon Web Services and is gonna become the CEO of Amazon, had just finished his uh, 
16, 18 month uh, stint as Jeff Bezos' shadow right before I joined, he could have had any job he wanted to in the in, in the company, but he said, hey, there's something here with this web services. I'm gonna go in a risky venture and go try to figure out what would eventually become cloud computing. That would be a career ender at some organizations. And that's not at Amazon. Inventing on the behalf of customers, even if there's a chance it may fail, is something that's uh, encouraged and rewarded at Amazon. Awesome. That's just awesome. Yeah. Um, it is uh, it's, it's, wonderful. It's a wonderful story. I mean, really thinking about the culture, thinking about the ideas, the thought process that's here. Um, let's go into what does it mean to develop an Amazonian mindset? Uh, you know, <laughs> you guys so, both have it. So, yes. Yes. Uh, as I say to people, you can take me out of Amazon, but you can't take the Amazon out of me. Um, so the Amazonian mindset is really what we try to describe in the book. It's actually a term that people use inside Amazon. They say if someone is behaving in a way that comports with the principles and processes uh, of Amazon, then they say you're being Amazonian. And by comparison, if you're not, they're saying you're not being Amazonian. So. Uh, the simplest way to under, understand what it means to be Amazonian is to actually look at the Amazon's uh, 14 leadership principles. Uh, 14 is a lot. Um, when they were first developed, there were 10 of them, and they've added to, added to that list over the years. And um, unlike most companies, a lot of companies have some list of values or principles, but in many cases, they don't mean very much. They're a kind of a poster on the wall but they don't really influence how leaders think and behave. And uh, at Amazon, that's not the case. In fact, uh, that, that set of leadership principles is used as the screen or mechanism to decide when people are interviewing prospective candidates, mm -hmm. are they gonna be a good fit at Amazon? And they're also used for performance coaching and feedback. Um, they're also used in nearly every meeting in the company. So when you're making a decision, uh, a good leader at Amazon, or I, there are very few meetings I had where um, I wouldn't refer to when trying to uh, arrive at the right decision, refer to one or more of the leadership principles like, well, we need to make sure that we're thinking, we're not, we're not thinking big about, uh, big enough about this as an example, or mm, we really need to, you know, for this problem, we really need to invent and simplify better. We're not, we're not simplifying this problem well enough. Um, or we're not really starting with the customer here. Um, and so these principles are actually uh, a stand-in for Jeff. Jeff, uh, you know, uh, and the leadership team created these basically because, you know, Amazon and Jeff faced the same problem that every entrepreneur CEO who's successful faces, which is at some point, they can't be in every meeting, they can't be in every hiring decision. And so how do they you know, clone their mindset, clone their thinking, and let it replicate around the rest of the company. And these leadership principles effectively do that. And then more to the point, uh, in, uh, not only um, uh, the, the, the company actually sought to create several processes that reinforce the leadership principles. So it's not enough just to say the words, you need then to create processes that force people to actually use those principles as how they actually do their work. I love them. Learn and be curious. It's one of my favorite. I write a lot. I love that one. Have backbone, disagree and commit. I mean, if every company worked like this, I mean, these are some great values that are out there. So it is amazing. Uh, Colin, Bill, this is my final question. You know, so, uh, you know, I'm a CEO of a company. I read uh, your book and I absolutely want to adopt the mindset. Is, is there a first step? Uh, that, that I can take as a leader of my organization to start applying the Amazonian mindset in my company or, 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 or first step where I can apply some of the 14 principles quickly without, uh, you know, ensuring that it's a quality implementation so that my company can begin thinking and operating and executing like Amazon. I, I would say for a smaller organization, if you do not have the leadership principles or core values that define who you are and what makes you unique and how the organization should make decisions when the CEO is not in the room, you, get, you need to get those uh, defined pretty quickly. And um, and then the, the second part, and, and, and then for your hiring process, you need to have a very deliberate hiring process where you can that whether this person coming into the organization will reinforce the culture or 
uh, detract from the culture. And that's super important for small organizations because if you have five people in your group and you're going to want to go to 15 and you're not deliberate about that, your culture will change to something that you uh, don't know what it will be and it probably will be something you don't want. Uh, for larger organizations, yeah, there are uh, a, a couple of um, very simple processes that you can adopt tomorrow, you know, after reading the book, switching from using slides or PowerPoints in order to uh, make complex decisions to narratives, you can do that tomorrow. First couple narratives, it'll be, you know, there'll be some bumps along the road, you'll, but you'll get better and better at that. And uh, the other thing, uh, we talk about how Amazon measures uh, uh, businesses, focuses more on what we call controllable input metrics. And those are things that if you do those things right and you drive them in the right direction, you will uh, yield, your business will have the desired output metrics like revenue, free cash flow. So making sure that you've identified, do I know actually what are the key drivers in my business? Am I measuring them and can I control them? And how do I uh, drive those in the right direction? Those are things that you can start on immediately. And it's, you know, this is also a journey. It takes a long time to, you know, to, to, to perfect in those things. But those are a few things that you can get started on right away. It was a small organization. As I'm listening to you, the requirement for clarity of thought and also a long-term mindset, it, seem, it, it seems like you, you really, to build a strong narrative, you really need to, uh, again, uh, a deep understanding, clarity of thought, quiet mind, uh, and, uh, and, and a long-term view uh, in order to have sustainable success. Uh, is, is that a fair, fair set of requirements to... to, to, to operate in, in, in the world of Amazon? Yeah, and I would just uh, reinforce that long-term thinking does not mean it takes you longer to get to your end goal. Yeah. Long-term thinking and clarity of thought prevents you from zigging and zagging, which yeah. that is non-value add activity. So Amazon was the fastest company from zero to a hundred billion dollars. And Amazon Web Services grew faster from zero to 10 billion, faster than Amazon itself did. And that was with long-term thinking, clarity of thought. So, you know, stopping to slow down in the beginning often will speed you up and get to where you want to end up quicker than you otherwise would. This is great. We're getting some Brilliant. awesome insights here with insiders at Amazon, Bill Carr and Colin Breyer, co-founders of Working Backwards LLC and authors of Working Backwards. You can, of course, get the book on Amazon. Follow Bill at B-I-L-L-C-A-R-R 89 and Colin at C-B-R-Y-A-R. And if you're looking for executive coaching and workshops and insights that you can help yourself as a leader, definitely check out their organization. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank, Thank you, you for Bill. having Thank us. Amazing. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Right. That was so much that wisdom. That is amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> that well, hey, amazing. we're going to wait and we're going to pop in and see our next guest as they channel in. So, all right. So, hold up for a second. Ray, we are delighted uh, to have our next guest. Mavi Zangoni is the Executive Managing Director of Client and Low Carbon Generation at Rapsol and a member of the Executive Committee. Repsol is a global multi-energy provider that strives to drive the evolution towards low emissions energy model. In fact, Repsol is the first energy company to make the commitment to reach net zero emissions by 2050, which is aligned with the climate objectives set out by the Paris Agreement and the United Nations Sustainability Development Goals. Mavi's responsibilities include managing the renewable electricity generation and low emission assets portfolio with the aim to further grow internationally and expand the business. Mavi is also responsible for designing Repsol's multi-energy and mobility offerings aimed at comprehensively meeting every mobility and energy need. Mavi is the chair of the Repsol Electricity and Gas, which has become a leading player in the commercialization and generation of low carbon electricity in Spain. You can follow her awesome tweets on Twitter at Mavi Zangoni, M-A-V-I-Z-I-N-G-O-N-I. Welcome Mavi to Disrupt TV. Hello, good day to all of you and thank you for having me here. You know, welcome to the show. This is amazing. One of the things that, you know, you don't often talk about is low carbon and energy uh, in the same sentence. Uh, and so I think this is really exciting. Let's talk about Repsol and really talk a little about the company, how it got founded and really what this shift into to meet the SDGs uh, by 2050 are all about. So let's start there. 
Thank you, uh, Ray, and again, thank you, uh, thank you all for having me here. You know, uh, Repsol, uh, I would say Repsol is an energy uh, company that is very committed to provide the energy that the customer needs uh, whenever that customer uh, needs it. And, and I'd say that's, uh, that's important. I mean, the commitment is let's provide the energy, uh, the energy products and the energy services that the society uh, needs. It is true that our history is a traditional oil and gas uh, oil and gas company, so we were born as a as an oil and gas uh, company. But sustainability has always been a constant uh, for us; has always been in our mind. Uh, actually, we were the first uh, company uh, in the sector to support the Kyoto Protocol uh, many years ago. And as you uh, mentioned, uh, Bala. We were the first company back, uh, oil and gas, traditional oil and gas company, back in 2019 uh, to commit to be net zero by 2050. But, but to me, most important uh, that, that, that the commitment is that we are not saying, okay, we are going to be net zero in 2050. We are making uh, yearly commitments. So, and, and that's a key, and that's a differentiator, a differentiator factor in comparison to our peers. Uh, we are pioneering this, but uh, we are very happy to see how others are moving towards uh, towards there. No, so uh, what we are doing right now, if you ask me, what is Repsol? Repsol is a very well-stable companies, let's say, with uh, four clear businesses: the traditional uh, EMP exploration and production, or traditional upstream. The traditional industrial uh, businesses, refining and, and chemicals, then the renewables that we are developing and we have a commitment towards to that. And, and finally, I'd say what we call the customer centric businesses is how we do how we do provide all that energy to our to our customer, acknowledging that the customers might need different energies in different moments across the day, across the seasons, uh, etc. So that is uh, that is Repsol, a multi-energy uh, company that uh, with a, with a commitment to thrive in the energy transition. Yeah, Repsol has such a such That's a revered amazing. brand in the energy sector. You're operating in 34 countries. You have over 25,000 employees. And you're a pioneer in terms of low carbon, 100% low carbon electricity generation at 3,000 megawatts currently. So, I mean, truly a pioneer, always making forward progress. I love the forward-looking vision uh, of Repsol, a global energy company that creates value in a sustainable manner through innovation. Often when I talk to Repsol, I feel like I'm talking to a technology company. Efficiency and respect to drive progress for society. Tell us your vision about the energy sector. Take us on a journey of what the next few years will look like as you go towards this incredible mission of 2050? Well, I, I will try. I don't have the crystal ball. So I, <laughs> I, I will try to say, I mean, how, how, do, we see the, uh, how do we see the future? Uh, first of all, uh, the energy demand will keep on growing. So we have a, a growing population in the, uh, in the world. We also have, uh, what is a good thing, the development of different, uh, of different economies. So all in all, it means that the growth in demand, uh, in energy demand is going to be in there. And it's very much linked to the development of, of the society. So we, we as a sector, as the energy sector, we need to give an answer to that growing demand. But when, when we uh, think about how do we need that energy uh, to be? The energy, uh, first of all, it needs to be uh, accessible, accessible to all. I mean, it is. Um, we 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 uh, need to bear in mind that it is still an important part of the world population that doesn't have access to uh, to energy, any kind of energy. So, first thing is uh, the accessibility of uh, of the energy. Uh, second, that energy needs to be reliable. So anytime that uh, we switch on, uh, we need to count on that uh, energy. If not, we might think about, uh, for instance, during these uh, 
COVID uh, situation, what should have happened with the uh, hospitals, uh, with the um, with anything that needs the energy. So reliability is also another important component that we need to have. Also, the energy it needs to be competitive. It needs to be affordable. We 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 uh, it should be in a way that we can access to that from a competitor, from the, uh, let's say, a cash standpoint. And for sure, the energy needs to be more and more and more sustainable. What do I mean with all of this? On the one hand, you have a growing need of energy, a growing demand. On the other, you have the new sources of energy. You have, uh, for sure, the electrification of the economy. Electrification is an answer for some uh, for some sectors it's an answer for some uh, alternatives of, or for some needs but we cannot count on electrification uh, for instance at this uh, at this point for some industrial purposes or for or for aviation or for or for shipment or, or whatever no so in the way that we should think about it i mean the demand is going to be in there how we do provide that energy more and more sustainably by counting on all of the energy uh, sources. So even in our mind, in the way that we, th that we think about it, I mean, oil and gas will still be an important part of the, uh, of the, energy, uh, of the energy demand. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can discuss, we can argue if it is going to be 55, 50 or 45 percent of the demand, but it's going to be around uh, around there based on the uh, international agency uh, data. So Bobby, you got a great uh, point. Yeah. Yeah, you, you have a great point. I mean, the energy mix is important. Form follows function, right? You can't just force fit something that might not work, yeah. especially if you're yeah. smelting aluminum. You're not going to be able to do it in certain ways, right? Or as you're talking about in aircraft, uh, aircraft situations as well. Uh, but let's talk quickly about this evolution of this renewable market that you're talking about here. I mean, this is a this is a huge deal because you're adding, you know, another gigawatt capacity of uh, additional capacity along the way. And you're thinking about, you know, all these new types of sources that are popping up. And you've also reduced CO2 emissions by 4.9 million metric tons uh, from 2006 to 2018. Those are some big numbers. So you're doing you're creating that mix and the energy and the renewable side seems to be, you know, a, a big investment and focus. So what do you see this evolution of renewable markets and of course what we happen in this electrification markets that also kind of exciting part of the market as well well the demand for electricity will continue to uh, to grow as i mentioned uh, as i mentioned before with a more and more increasing electrified uh, ec economy uh, and also in especially in mobility as well so uh, the, this increase in electrification is a consequence of the need to decarbonize uh, the uh, the, the economy and the different uh, and the different sectors, and we can do it because there are technical uh, technical advancement, uh, advancements on the on the one hand, and that's uh, and that's important. And those technical advances, at the same time, they have an impact uh, in what I said before in the affordability of the different uh, energy uh, energy sources. So. All the advancements, all the technical evolutions in battery, in uh, hydrogen, coupled with, uh, with coupled with also the traditional uh, pump storage that has also been in there as an important renewable uh, renewable source, and 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 all what we have learned uh, so far that is making the cost of the renewables uh, business, both the, the solar and the wind uh, and the wind farms and the wind uh, technologies, is uh, is helping us to uh, to go ahead with this uh, growing. Uh, or, or fast growing, I would say, uh, renewables, uh, renewable sources, and uh, and we want to be part. Uh, we want to be part of that. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, the culture of Repsol is based on four core principles: uh, value creation, respect, efficiency, and anticipation. And you know, again, Repsol was the first energy uh, company that committed to the Paris Accord. You've been a first in investing in artificial uh, intelligence and digitization. And, and so your ability to anticipate comes from your desire to engage with your customers. I know you personally are in front of the executives of the biggest companies in the world trying to anticipate their needs. What are your customers telling you, especially given last year and you know the, this, this once in a lifetime impact 
uh, of the pandemic. Can you tell us what their viewpoints are and their expectations and how Repsol is adjusting to make sure that you're delighting and continuing to add value to your customers? That, that's a great, uh, a great question, uh, Bala. In, 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 in our view, I mean, not only the customers are asking you uh, more transparency on the, on the one hand, they want to be uh, very clear about what they are contracting, what they are uh, consuming. They are hyper-connected, so uh, technology and digitalization plays uh, an important part of, uh, of the game in here. They are very demanding. They are more digital, that's, uh, that's key. Uh, they, they are better informed, so a lot of uh, information that you need to, uh, to keep in mind as well. With a growing concern on environmental, uh, environmental issues. So what we need to do is provide the products and services that they want and we need to help them in going through that energy transition. So it's not going to be, a, let's say, switch off fossil fuels button, switch on uh, a new uh, renewable uh, world. So it's going to be, how do we transit? How do we make this transition together? And that is what the, uh, what the customer is demanding us. And, and on top of that, uh, they want to feel special. We all want to feel special. Yeah. We want to feel, no, no matter what we consume, we want to be treated in a very, very personalized uh, way. So, and, and doing that with the energy is not easy, uh, it's not easy at all. So, uh, that is something that we want to do. So, on top of being that uh, multi-energy uh, company, so being the ones that provide all the energies uh, that that customer needs, and you might need uh, uh, power for your EV while you are out of home. When you are at home, you also need uh, power and you might need gas and you pr probably need uh, gasoline if you have your SUV uh, to go to the mountains or if uh, you want uh, to, to the sea or when you travel uh, and you use the flight indirectly, you are using uh, jet fuel or uh, whatever. So we all need, and also LPG, if we go uh, camping and we want to be a uh, warmer, uh, warmer there, no? So we need to have that in mind. So it means that we are providing so far, most of the energy companies, we were very much product-oriented, no? Product-oriented. And right now we are changing our focus. So we're going to be customer-oriented. So we're going to be your energy provider. So it means that uh, we need to understand who you are on an overall way. We need to we need to provide you an only one experience. I'm not telling no no you need to call to this other number to get uh, to get power or to get uh, gasoline or for whatever. So it also means that you need uh, to have an omni channel. You need to you need to make it simple for the uh, for the customer. And it's it's not an easy journey, no. but it's a it's a journey that we are committed. I mean, it's a it's a great challenge and uh, it's exciting us. It really is. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it's Ray, I just fun. want to say, yeah. So I I I visited uh, the Repsol headquarters in Madrid and had long uh, collaboration and discussions with the Repsol team. And and I said at the beginning of this interview. They're a technology company. <laughs> it's, you know, all my conversations, let, let me just share some numbers. Uh, and I'm talking technology company leaning into disruptive technology. Repsol has launched 190 digital initiatives to bring the company closer to their customers, not just upstream, downstream, close to consumer, largest EV charging stations in Spain, largest wind solar farms. I mean, incredible technology and innovation. There are a thousand people across the company that are working, collaborating for digital transformation. They've partnered with 40 digital leading companies. So they're not just trying to invent things inside of Repsol, it's an ecosystem of trailblazers. And since the digital transformations have taken uh, hold within Repsol, there's 500 new jobs that have been created solely focused on transformation across 10 technology hubs, from an an analytics to blockchain to AI. It's an amazing amount of work that's happening. Sorry, I, I just wanted to be clear. It's I, in the energy sector. I have not worked personally with a company that's so focused in terms of technology in making sure the future of the company ends up delighting their stakeholders. It's 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 remarkable, right? It's remarkable. Sorry, <laughs> there wasn't Thank a question you, uh, there. That's just comments. 
<laughs> yeah, no, no, it is, it, it is exciting, right? And when we think about this, you know, this, the opportunities that digitization have, right, to transform the business, right? And, and it's not just about the ability to answer any contact center or call or connection point from a customer. You're transforming business models at this moment, right? And, and that requires a core sense of what does the monetization model look like? How do we actually approach, uh, you know, the customer experience? What does that journey look like on the back end? What does our supply look like, right? And when you bring upstream, downstream, and you bring those th things together, that's, that's not easy. That's not an easy piece. So, but but how does this digital? I mean, how does this digitization transform your company? Like, what have you learned? Some lessons that you want to share with people in terms of uh, this approach? Because you can't just light up a thousand people all at once to do this. No, it has no, to come no, from no, a, no. It has to come from a higher purpose to be able to get there. It's, it it it's important to have a, a I'd say a, a shared uh, vision. Uh, with a with a with a clear ambition, I'd say that our CEO put that ambition. Say, okay, I want uh, I want our PNL to be impacted by 2023 for in in one billion in uh, based on all the digitalization changes that we are doing. So it means that all the organization uh, shifts towards uh, towards that. So. A vision and, and, and a shared ambition is uh, is important. For sure, it, it, it requires a new culture, new ways of uh, of working. So you can imagine that from a traditional oil and gas company with a risk management uh, mindset, because that is what we have and what we need to have in traditional business. If you are, I, I don't know, uh, drilling uh, ultra deep water wells in the middle of uh, Gulf of Mexico. So you need to have that culture to a different uh, culture and how you, how you make digitalization to be part of that, to be uh, to be more agile, to be uh, more precise, to help you in uh, with the uh, with the data, We're applying uh, digital twins in the uh, in the industrial side of uh, of the business. How you uh, help to improve your uh, health and and safety standards as well. So that's information that you need to put in there how the robotics uh, helps you in back office staff or any industrial uh, any industrial staff and then it comes uh, i'd say the probably the most uh, fashionable uh, side that is how you build new products and new services based on digital uh, on digital tools so so we can make personalized offers based on that we can have a uh, overall view of the customer based on based on that we can build uh, loyalty programs we can build uh, solar communities uh, based on on digital tools we can also move things to the cloud and save uh, and save energy and be more energy efficiency based on the digital uh, on the digital tools so you need to put all the digital tools not as uh, as a competitor of what you do i remember the first time that i challenged the team why don't we have an app to pay in our fuel stations i'm talking three years ago no because the people is not going to enter into the store to pay so they are not going to consume so um, listen the customer of the 21st century doesn't want to consume because we are forcing him to enter into the store we want to make his experience easier uh quicker uh simpler and they are going to consume if we offer them a good value proposition so uh so bottom uh, bottom end i mean we have a, a better business uh more digitalized with a better interaction with them and we are providing more and more non-oil uh, around our traditional oil and our new uh, renewables uh, products that we are putting in place. So it's uh, for sure, it means uh, a cultural uh, shift. And once you see uh, results, uh, we keep on moving. What is, uh, what is good? I mean, uh, we need to understand that competitive advantages in uh, nowadays, I mean, they last for five minutes. I always say to the team, listen, we need to think in the way that uh that amazon cannot deliver the gasoline yet that that's uh, that's the word that i like to emphasize no? i love it Bob. how, how uh, great is it how great is it to have uh, an executive from the energy sector talk about digital twins mobile apps awesome. smart I mean, robotics awesome. we're, 
We're out of time. We could be doing this for 40 more minutes. <laughs> it was amazing. I, I really just, uh, what, what an incredible uh, amount of effort and energy that's going into really transforming Repsol and uh, really appreciate your thought leadership and continue to be a role model in the industry and society. Uh, you know, we're all looking for Repsol to lead the industry in terms of transformation and you're doing that as a trailblazer. So congratulations. Amazing. We are here with Mavi Zingani, Executive Managing Director, Client and Low Carbon Generation, Chair of Electricity and Gas at Repsol, and of course, promoting the energy transition. So thanks a lot so much for being here. You can follow her at M-A-V-I-Z-I-N-G-O-N-I. So thanks for being here on Disrupt TV. Thank you. Cheers. Hey, this is crazy. What an interview. I mean, that was amazing. So it's great to see, uh, you know, the energy sector, which you wouldn't necessarily think is, you know, uh, a leading uh, sector when it comes to digitization and, you know, the 10 different technology hubs that they have and the focus on really getting to a renewable energy, as she said, perhaps greater than 50% of, uh, you know, the company's products is, is incredibly admirable and inspiring. So a great interview. I know. This is crazy. This is our March madness. We've got some like heavy hitters all throughout March and April. Who we've got coming next week? Yeah, please go to the Disrupt website to get a sense of who the guests are for the next couple of months. But as far as next week, episode 227, and we're only a handful away from our 700th interview on Disrupt TV uh, during the course of the last five years. Scott Galloway is our first guest, author of Post Corona, from crisis to opportunity. Uh, Scott's a multi best-selling author, a digital influencer, and an incredible thought leader. So we're delighted to have Scott. Grant Holleran, CEO of Planful, and Rachel Fryson, head of community and advocacy for PagerDuty. So three incredible uh, thought leaders and practitioners, and uh, it's gonna be an amazing show. Just like this uh, episode, 226. <laughs> I know this episode is amazing, but just to give people an idea of the magnitude of guests we've got coming, we've got Mary Hamilton from Accenture. She's an MD on innovation. Clara Sheaf, you know, she was on the board of Starbucks. She still is, I believe. She's CEO of a service cloud at Salesforce. We got the Ministry of Common Sense uh, by Martin Lindstrom. He'll be here. I mean, lots of folks coming down. Perry Hewitt, one of the first chief digital officers, is coming back. We got Raja 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 Manar from Mastercard talking quantum marketing, and Teresa Barreria at Publicist Sapien is coming back. We got big guests coming. This is huge, man. Yeah. Raja is an incredible CMO. We're gonna learn a lot from Raja. I've been following him on Twitter for many years. He's terrific. Yeah, great, right. great lineup. And uh, you know, we got we have uh, a fair number of people that tune in to, to Disrupt, uh, not just the live Disrupt, but throughout the week. Uh, so we really appreciate you and let us know, let Ray, myself, our producer L know who you wanna see on the show. We're typically two to three months booked. So whomever you suggest, we'll try to get into the June, July, August, and end the year timeframe. But we're always open to suggestions. Yeah, we're always open to suggestions. Every Friday, join us 11 a.m. Pacific. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Join one of the top enterprise tech podcasts in the world. So thank you for being here. So take care, everyone. Bye, everyone.